there's always an end to the race. And that's what Paul says. I, 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 I finished the race. I finished the course. In order to make it to the end, we must not stop depending on Jesus. We're looking to hear Jesus say to us when we see him, well done, good and faithful servant. Right? Um, and so we looked at Israel and their... They didn't make it. Israel didn't make it the full course. The beginning of the race started in Egypt, right? And they, they, they were running the race. They, they had a pit stop at, at Mount Sinai. And then they were on their way to, uh, to the promised land. One thing I always thought as a kid was that it took 40 years from Israel to get to, from Egypt to Canaan. But that's not true. They got there pretty quick. But it was when they got to the, the edge of the promised land, they sent out the spies. The spies came back and said, we can't do this. They're giants. Their walls are fortified. We're going to get beat. And Israel, in their unbelief, said, then let's not go in. They did not finish the race. And then God said, because of that, there's 40 more years in the desert. You're all going to die except your kids. You will not enter into my promise. You will not enter into my rest. They failed to finish the race. Um, and that that was basically the point of what we looked at this morning. But what we didn't get to, one thing that I want to touch on that we, we didn't get to was, so we were doing a comparison of the Old and New Testament, or the Old versus the New. We were looking at Israel and their failure, and how does that compare to us? Well, we're no different from Israel. We're we're just as much we're just as much no we are bound to not finish the race because we're we're um, deceived by sin as much as they are we are we have the potential of falling away from God as they did uh, but there's a difference the leader the leader of Israel from Egypt to the promised land was Moses. Our leader is better than Moses. Our leader is the son of God. Right? And he brings us completely. That's what we talked about, perseverance, that golden chain. It's because our mediator isn't Moses, it's the son of God. So that's not, we didn't talk about that, but I want, we're going to talk a little bit about that tonight. But before we do that, I wanted to touch a little bit more on this whole aspect of sin killing you, right? So as you're in Romans 8, let me just read a reminder of where we got to this idea of sin being really bad for our race, our finishing the race. So before I, before we, y'all just hang out at Romans 8, and I'll read this back in Hebrews 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you... An evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And he's saying, like Israel, like we just talked about. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So the preacher in Hebrews is very aware that sin will can and have a devastating effect on the believers, the gathered church, because he's speaking to a group. 
Um, and so we mentioned that sin's, sin has its goal, and that's to destroy us. So we have to, we have to fight and kill it first because it wants to kill us. It wants to harden our heart. It wants to lead us to fall away from the living God, especially as a body, a professing believer of Christians. And so Romans 8 kind of gives us, and I've, I don't know how many times I've probably looked at this passage with y'all in on a Sunday night. But there's just so much in Romans 8. Um, start in 9. Now let's just let's just read through one. Let's just start at one. Because this kind of encompasses the whole idea. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That period. I don't care who you are, if you are in Christ, you can no longer be condemned. Uh, if you're justified before God, you will never be unjustified before God. Okay? If you're declared innocent by God because of the blood of Christ, you will always be innocent because of the blood of Christ. It does not change. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So I let's stop here. I'm wrestling with verses 4, with verse 4. I've always seen verse 4, the, the first half of verse 4, as Christ has fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law for us. Because we can't, right? He, he came and lived a perfect life. He kept the law of God perfectly. He is righteous. We are not. And so I've always read that that's what that is. But I think there might be a little, and that's true, but I think that this passage might be pushing more back on us as Christians in our lives than we realize. So Christ came in verse 3, and he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might, been, might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Meaning, because Christ came and condemned sin in the flesh and set you free, are you going to, going to live a, purchase right, a perfectly righteous life? No. But you will. You will be walking not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And if you're walking according to the Spirit, will you be doing deeds of righteousness? Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. Can you completely fulfill this, uh, like the law of God, like Jesus did? No. But he has 
He has made a way that you are no longer a slave to sin. Like we talked about this, uh, what we talked about earlier. If you're outside of Christ, you're a, your will is a slave to sin, meaning that's the bent you're always going to go. But when the Spirit of God comes inside of you, you are free from that. You are free from that bent. Uh, look back at Romans six. Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So, therefore, if you've been set free from sin, what have you been set free to? Righteousness. Right. So, yes, verse 4 of chapter 8, if we want to say that Christ came and fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law perfectly on our behalf, yes. But I also see that he did that in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And if you're going to be walking according to the Spirit, you're going to be walking in righteousness. Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the Spirit is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit, to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set on the mind, set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So we think about, take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart causing you to fall away from the living God. Is that person with an evil, unbelieving heart falling away from God, are they walking in the spirit or are they walking in the flesh? They're walking in the flesh. And you have been placed in their lives to give them the loving spiritual knock over the head and say, wake up. Wake up. And remember, when you, when you have a conversation with someone who's in that position, say, remember, remember your confession. Remember what you said. That you have believed and repented in Christ for the redemption of your uh, of yourself and for the forgiveness of your sin. Remember what you have said. And then you can tell them, remember your baptism. Right? Because what does he say in Romans 6? He says, uh, Do we not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? How can we who died in sin still live in it? Now I read that backwards. But the point is, you got we we baptized you to show that you have died to sin. Remember your baptism. Wake up. You keep going and you're going to fall away from God. You have to wake up. Remember what you have said. Now look back at Hebrews 3 and now look how this language kind of falls out. In verse 6, 
But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, as we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Uh, Look at verse... Confession, confession. Um, Verse 14. Verse 14 of chapter 3. Oh no, let's let's read thirteen for the context, because this is what we're talking about. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today. Why? So that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Hey, Wake up. We have something in common. We have Christ in common. Hold fast to that confidence. Hold fast to that truth. This is who we are. Help one another fight sin, to put sin to the death. For and I, Because we're back at Hebrews 3, just hear this. If you live according to the flesh... You will die. There's sin killing you right there. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Um... How's that song go, Sylvia? I'm in the Lord's army. Sing it for us. You do too. I'm in the Lord's army. What? Who? If, yeah. You know, we think about fighting Satan. We think about fighting the evil world around us. But we gotta fight our own sin. We gotta fight our own flesh. I, the, I, I think of Satan the world, and our flesh as the evil three, right? They're in cahoots with one another. Satan, the world, and our flesh. But we have a, a much infinite greater trifecta, triune, trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, right? Um, so... What does it look like to fight sin, to put sin to death? And the the best place I know to look is Colossians 3. Now... We can be deceived ourselves in what it means to put sin to death. Here's what I mean. You could become an unbiblical, fundamental legalist and say all and, and it become all about do, 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 do. Don't do, don't do, don't do, don't do. These are the rules and you must abide by them because what that becomes is it becomes us crawling out of the shelter and the refuge of God and standing on top of it and saying, I got this. 
that is that's legalism at its greatest of saying these are the rules and I'll keep them. That's all that's what the Pharisees did. They found they found their righteousness in their 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 keeping the law. So we we can't start we, we have no I say we have to start putting sin to death with faith. It begins with faith. It begins by realizing that you must be under the shelter and fortress of God. You are a weak refugee. You need Him. You are dead apart from Him. We have to start there. And so verse three, or verse 1 of, of Colossians 3 says, If you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Right? Right. Look to Christ. That's how we begin. By looking to Christ. Not looking inward and saying, I have to live a certain way. It begins by looking to Christ. And then we get to verse 5. As we're looking to Christ... Where our lives are based on faith, trusting God to do this. Verse 5, here it is. Here's how you kill sin. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, get rid of it. Impurity, get rid of it. Passions, get rid of it. Evil desire, get rid of it. Covetousness, get rid of it, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked. When you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Put them away. Put anger away. Put wrath away. Put malice away. Put slander away. Put obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. And have put on the new self. So we're putting off the old. We're pushing it away. So then we're putting on new. In order to, to, uh, to take place of the old. But look what's happening. The new is being renewed in the knowledge and in the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So then the question is, how do I put off those things? How do I put off sexual immorality and impurity? Well, verse 12, it's by putting on these things put on then as God. Well, let me back up. It begins with a knowledge. Never, ever say that your faith is just faith without knowledge that you don't need to understand or know. You will fall away from the living God if you try to live your life as a Christian without knowledge of God. Because that's why he says this, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Do you think like those are just terms that he just throws out? Those terms have great theological implications. Those terms speak about who you are in Christ. Those terms speak about who God is to you. Now, if I told you to, oh, let me try to do this. 
And I, I can't think of an illustration. So I won't do that. He begins with information, knowledge, put on then as God's chosen ones. What does that mean? It means God has been gracious to me. God has looked upon me with favor. Wow. Me? Okay. You know, sexual immorality doesn't look so good no more when I, when I think and consider that God has put his favor on me. Holy? I'm not holy. Are you kidding me? No, but in Christ, you are separate from the world. And not only separated from the world, but being made holy like His Son. And beloved. Loved. God loves me? You serious? See, that's information. That's theology. That we can go and look through a confession or statement of faith and I can point this thing. Or we can look through a systematic theology and say, here's where these doctrines are. God's chosen holiness and and beloved. These are things that speak to what God has done to you and for you. That's where you start in putting off sin and putting on holiness and righteousness. It begins with understanding what God has done for you. Because if not, then you're just trying to be a better person. Then you're just going to be a legalist, a moralist, and you're still going to go to hell. Even as a good person. But when it begins with who you are in Christ, what God has done for you despite your evilness and your sin. When it starts there, that's when you're living not just to be a good person, but you're living for the glory of God. I want to put off sexual immorality because my God hates it and he loves me. I want to put off uh, anger and malice because God hates those things. But he has chosen me to be holy and blameless. So therefore, I want to put those things away and I want to be what he has called me to be. So he says, put on compassionate hearts, kindness Humility, meekness, and patience. And so the idea is that as, as the evil worldly stuff goes away, the righteous and holiness and good parts come on. So the anger, the math and the ralus, math and ralus, wrath and malice leave us, but we put on compassionate hearts, kindness and humility, meekness and patience. What are we doing? We're bearing the fruit of the Spirit of God. Putting away our evil works and deeds and bearing the fruit of the Spirit of God who now dwells in us. So you read the rest of that and you're like, okay, I've got to, this. These are the ways to put off sin. Bearing with one another. Forgiving one another. But verse 15 completes it. And 16. If you're going to put off, if you're going to kill sin individually and we're going to do it collectively as a church, the peace of Christ, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called into one body. So we're doing it together. 
and be thankful. And we're doing it in thanksgiving. And we let the word of Christ dwell in us. If you don't read your Bible, the word of Christ can't dwell on you. You can't put on anything good and you can't take off anything bad. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And here it is. Take care, brothers. Take care of one another so that this evil thing doesn't happen to you. Look what he says. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. It doesn't say listening to the preacher every Sunday. But like he said in Hebrews, take care, brothers, of one another. Exhort one another. Teach and admonish. Remind. Remember your baptism, brother. Remember your confession, sister. And not only that, how else can we have the word of Christ dwell in us richly? By singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's why it's so important that we sing together. That's why it's not just important that we sing together, but that we sing together songs that are rich with that knowledge and wisdom and theology of God. So when we sing to one another, we're actually, telling, we're actually taking care of one another. We're actually exhorting one another. Uh, on cross, Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Um, what are we telling one another? To stand on Christ. Um, Jesus paid it all. You're singing that. You're telling the people around you, remember, Jesus paid it all. Our singing isn't because that's just what we do. We sing. That's what churches do. They sing three songs in the front and one song in the end. No. It has me. It has biblical purpose for your good and sanctification. And for the praise of God. Okay. That's killing sin. That's putting to death sin. Now, I just quickly want to look back at Hebrews 3. And I want us to get this comparison of Moses and Jesus down. This won't take... I won't won't take long on this. Okay, let's just start at 1 and read... Uh, read through here a little bit. Hebrews 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Think about him. Meditate on him. Dwell on him. Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Jesus, who was faithful to him, to God, who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all of God's house. Okay, here's the beginning of the comparison. Verse 3, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone But the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. 
But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So let's stop here for a second. And let's think about a few things that's been said. So for the sake of time, I'm just going to read this to you. Everything, you're going to notice that we're seeing things in the Old Testament that say, look for something better. Okay? The prophets. We started in verse 1 of chapter 1. The prophets spoke to us about the things of God. Well, Jesus was the better prophet. Okay? The angels brought the Old Test the angels brought the law of God to Israel. Well, Jesus is a better messenger. Moses was God's servant, and not just a servant, not just a prophet, but it's very clear in the Old Testament that he was probably the most important prophet of the Old Testament. Uh, I think there is a verse that says, especially of his time. So this is in Numbers 12. When Miriam and Aaron, his brother and sister, are opposing Moses, God says, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, myself uh, know to him. I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. So God says, if there's a Moses, if there's a Moses, there's a prophet among Israel, I speak to them in visions and dreams. Then he says, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. There's a quote, right? He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth. So Israel, or I shouldn't say Israel, anybody with an understanding of the Old Testament, when they see the writer of Hebrews talking about Moses, they know that they're talking about the prophet of prophets of the Old Testament. God spoke to Moses mouth to mouth. To mouth. So he is a big deal. I spoke to him not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Now hang on to that because we'll come back to that in a minute. So, with that in mind, Moses says this to Israel I will, uh, on behalf of God, Moses is speaking to Israel on behalf of God, so the I is God here. I, God, will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Do you remember when John the Baptist came on the scene and the Pharisees and the leaders came to him and like they're saying, who's this guy? Who's this Moses or who's this uh, John the Baptist? What's he doing? And they ask him, and they say, are you, the, are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? They're, they're referring to Deuteronomy 18. Israel had been waiting for a better Moses for a long time. They'd been waiting for the Messiah, the prophet that Moses spoke of. It's Christ, the better Moses, right? He is speaking of the one, that's what it says in Hebrews 3, that Moses was a servant in God's house to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. So let me just quickly do this. Three comparisons I've thought of when we get Moses and Jesus. And I've already mentioned one, 
Moses failed to bring Israel out of Egypt to the promised land. He failed. He was still this great servant over the house of God, but he could not do that task. And he himself failed to enter into the promised land. Jesus brings us into the promised land. And he does not leave one behind. Just like we said earlier, before we got started, uh, those whom the Father gives me will come to me. I will not lose one of them. I will raise them up on the last day. He does not fail to bring home the sheep. Um, Philippians 1 says, uh, He who began a good work in you will surely complete it. That is Jesus, the better Moses. The second one, the second thing, as Moses is leading Israel to, uh, to the promised land, Moses, on behalf of Israel, pleads to God for bread and water. And God provides bread and water. Moses cannot provide it, cannot give it. The New Testament is very clear in a couple places that Jesus is the bread. Jesus was the rock that they drank from. He, God, is the provider. Moses was the in-between of saying, they need this. Can you provide? Jesus says, they need this, and I am providing myself. I am the bread and the water. The living waters, the bread of life, right? Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Which, that's another sermon altogether. So Moses Moses takes the problems of Israel to God. God provides the means. Jesus takes the problems of, of, the, uh, uh, of, his, of his sheep, takes them, and then provides because he is God. Okay? The third thing, and this is my favorite. Uh, when Moses was up on the mountain, he asked God to, to show him what? His glory. And God said, I can't. Anybody who sees my glory will die. Right? But he, God's like, you know what? I'll, be, I'll have compassion on you now. And I'll show you the backside of my glory. Moses is hidden from, from being annihilated by the glory of God, but catches a glimpse of his glory. Moses comes off the mountain, and what does he look like? His face is glowing. It's shining because he sees the backside of the glory of God as he comes off the mountain. Jesus is better. Why? Jesus on a mountain reveals his own glory at the Mount of Transfiguration. He does not shine because of the glory of someone else. He shines because of the glory of who he is, the Son of God and his righteousness. And he pulls back the flesh before Peter, James, and John, and he reveals his 
glory. He does not shine because he reflects something else. He shines because he is the source of the glory and the light. Moses could only reflect that, and it was not in him. It was just coming to him. But Christ, the glory, comes from him. Jesus is the greater Moses. And therefore, that's why the writer in Hebrews 3 says, Consider Jesus as he paints this picture of us having this danger and problem of having an evil, unbelieving heart and falling away like Israel. He's reminding us that in Christ, if we hold fast to our confidence in him, if we hold fast to our boasting in him, we have no worries. We have no worries of this. Um, so, with all that said, this passage again is a reminder of faith, of trusting, of looking to and finding life. That's why Jesus says, "I am uh, whoever eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood will have eternal life." If let me ask you this: If you stopped eating and drinking tomorrow, what would happen to you eventually? Do you believe that? Yeah, you would. You truly believe that if you stop eating and drinking, you will die. Faith in Christ is knowing that if you stop partaking of him, you will die. And so he says, those who eat of my flesh and drink of my blood will live. It is those who are constantly, because you have to eat always. It's those who are constantly living by faith and knowing that they need Jesus. That is looking and considering Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, the apostle and high priest of our confession. I hope I made that clear this morning, that as the apostle and high priest of our confession, he is the one who brings us faith and the one who keeps it as our high priest. He is the author of it and the finisher of it. He is the um, the founder of it and the perfecter of it. It is him that keeps it for us all throughout. And we are just looking to him, looking to him, and looking to him because he is the one working and doing. Okay? All right. Let's, uh, let's uh, spend some time in prayer.